Hey, everyone, and welcome back to the Venture Summit. This is Great Quarter Guys, the show where the lines between freight, finance, and tech are none. I'm your host, Andrew Cox. We are live from HQ2 here in Chattanooga, Tennessee. I'm a research analyst here at Freight Waves. With me, I have a fellow research analyst and member of the Freight Intel Group, Mr. Seth Holm. Thanks for joining me today, Seth. Thanks, Andrew. Good to be here. We're going to have another guest here after a commercial break in a few minutes. That's going to be Mr. Tiago Olson. He is the managing director of Engage Ventures in Atlanta, a very unique VC group that brings together a lot of Fortune 500 companies as well as some university researchers at Georgia Tech uh, and, and fosters this, this ecosystem of innovation uh, really focused on the Southeast and Atlanta especially. So that's going to be a great conversation after the break. But before we get there, we're going to run through our gauntlet of interest, our kind of ode to highly questionable see or no. This is going to be you care or not. Nah. I'm going to propose an idea or a topic or maybe an event to Seth, and he and I are going to give the reasons for why, the, why we care or not. The first one is a big one. Uh, this is the Ants Group IPO. This is the fintech company in China, a subsidiary of Alibaba, was supposed to be the biggest IPO ever. I mean, just a massively, they were supposed to raise $34.4 billion in concurrent IPOs in Hong Kong and Shanghai, but two days before it goes live, it gets pulled off the books. Seth, you care or not? I do care. And um, this one's fascinating to me, uh, reading about this. I mean, it's, it's, it's everything you want in a news story. It's completely sketchy. Uh, and, um, you know, it's an enormous company. We were kind of talking about offline how big, just how big this company is. So Ant Financial, uh, in industry terms, uh, in the payments industry, there's uh, GPV, which is gross payment volume. Uh, they do $17 trillion a year. In, in gross payment volume, which basically, I mean, just to put that in context, the U.S. GDP is 21 trillion, and they're about the sa- same size as uh, the EU's GDP. So walk me through that math. We we did it on the in a kind of a back of an envelope math earlier. How many? You know, they've got a billion people roughly using the app. What does that equate to on a yearly basis? Well, so 17 trillion divided by a billion is about 17 thousand dollars a year in average payment volume for each one of the users. And you know, we were kind of talking about you know what is the average income for someone in China. I think it's for uh, an individual in the U.S. It's what, like 35,000? Uh, yeah, I think household has gotten up to like 50 or 55, 50 or 60. 60. Yeah. So, I mean, on the individual level, I, I would think that would base, the, the math that we worked out in our head would mean that basically two out of every three people in China would have to be spending 100% of their income through one app. Yeah, and, and that seems crazy because, you know, no one app has that kind of market dominance in the U.S. But Alipay, they do everything from micro lending between uh, a financial group and people, uh, micro payments between people from business to business. I mean, every financial transaction you can imagine, they have like 80 percent of the market share of those financial transactions. So once you think about it, it's like maybe that 17 trillion is actually a number that you can you can realistically get to, which it's just nuts. It's basically the size of the European Union uh, annual GDP. Uh, but this is, you know, I, I definitely care about this one as well. You know, I, I'm an Alibaba a holder. Alibaba owns 30% of this. So you saw Alibaba trade off in a major way yesterday, down like 10% right. uh, or something. Uh, you know, it's supposed to be the biggest IPO ever, even bigger than Saudi Aramco last year. And it just seems to me that this could have gotten done earlier, right? Like they waited till the 11th hour to get this done. And we, we're not completely clear on what the reasons were. We know there's been some sort of regulatory changes that are going to uh, change the financial outlook for Ant. So they're, they haven't disclosed that to investors. So that's why they pulled it. Right. And I mean, I think one thing, this, this is a little bit symbolic uh, in terms of, it, you know, you, no one is above the law in China. I mean, if you think about Jack Ma, he's definitely probably the wealthiest guy in yeah, private individual in China. If he's not the wealthiest, he's probably, you know, top 
of a handful. And, uh, you know, the Wall Street Journal article that we read made it seem like he made some comments about the regulatory landscape that were basically directly opposite to one of the that one of the head guys in the Chinese government had laid out um, just before him at a big conference in Shanghai. And after that, there was a closed door. He was called in called into a closed door meeting and the IPO was pulled, you know, a day or two later. The last thing I want to say about this before we move on to our next topic is it was a big deal for Ant to decide that they weren't going to do an American IPO. They weren't going to have an American listing. And this makes me think, you know, maybe some of those those up and coming, those unicorns in China, maybe they rethink. I thought many would follow that path, that they would go for Hong Kong or Shanghai. But maybe with this regulatory problems, they might start looking towards the U.S. or European as an option again. Yeah, I mean, I, I do think it's a big blow to the both the Hong Kong and the Shanghai, what is it, the Star Exchange? Yes. Um, you know, it's a setback for them because this was a really sort of big milestone and iconic IPO would have been the biggest the world's ever seen. And, you know, they, they, have, they had to return the money to investors. So I think it's a, it's a very sort of stark sign of the investment risk that you take whenever you put money in China. So even if you're Jack Ma, you can be, your company can be, your IPO can be squashed uh, immediately if you do anything to upset the government. So there are risks out there. Definitely. Uh, some big risks for the next companies that we're going to talk about. These are two mall REITs, so real estate investment trusts, two separate ones filed for bankruptcy in the same week. Just last week, this is CBL Associates and the Pennsylvania REIT. They both filed for Chapter 11. Seth, you care or know about this? You know, I don't care in the sense that I'm not surprised at all by this. Um, These are landlords for B and C malls, as opposed to Simon Property, which does a lot of the the A malls. And um, so I'm not surprised from in in terms of the fundamental deterioration in just sort of the the mall business. It doesn't surprise me at all. I do care in the sense that CBL is a local company here in Chattanooga. And so uh, although they they aren't going into liquidation or anything, they're going to be restructured. But it probably does mean some job loss or, uh, you know, a, l- a little bit of a hit to the local economy. Uh, as for the Pennsylvania read, I don't, I don't know much about them. But. Yeah, other than they're the largest uh, real estate owner in Philadelphia, that's about all I know about them, uh, and that they operate, you know, the second and third tier malls. Some stark uh, data here from Coresite Research, they say that malls rank as the most avoided public space by consumers going into the holiday season. 55% of consumers say they're going to be avoiding malls. I'm glad you brought that up because when, when I was reading the script in that article, um, I was pretty surprised by that. I mean, I don't know where I would have put that and just in my head in terms of on the most avoided places, but, but it wouldn't have been a mall. Uh, because because malls, you do have a, you have a lot of space to operate, um, especially if, you know, um, if there's not a lot of traffic in the mall, you can definitely social distance um, if it's not packed in there and, yeah, you and can, do your shopping. Yeah, and do the limit, limit it doesn't, store quality. It didn't strike me, in other words, as being that dangerous. Now, I can understand, like, being on a cruise ship where you're packed in like sardines right. mm-hmm. on the on the with nowhere to go that that would have struck me as, or an airplane even um, but I was a little bit surprised by mall being number one. All right, so we got uh, about two and a half minutes here before our break. Let's get to this very cool company out of the UK, which I had just just heard about a couple weeks ago. You, you've heard about them for a few years, but this is a British online supermarket. So I didn't say British online grocery delivery. I said literally a online supermarket. It's a fully automated uh, warehouse using these incredible autonomous 
uh, robots. And I want to show you a video. I've got a quick clip here from the Okada supermarket that kind of gives you an idea because it's really difficult to understand what these are. But there's thousands of these little bots that can pick a 50 grocery item, um, a 50 grocery item shopping list in less than five minutes. And then it's on a truck to be delivered last mile to uh, the homes. So it's, it's remarkable. And the news we're bringing up here is that that company, Okado, just made two major acquisitions in the U.S. over the past week. They're two robotics companies. It's a San Francisco-based Kindred System. They paid over $250 million for that one. And then also La- Las Vegas firm Haddington Dynamics. So uh, $287 million altogether in this. You care or not, Seth? I do care. Uh, I've followed this company, not closely, but for a couple of years. Kroger made a big investment in this company, um, I, I, I think, as they look to expand their operations in the U.S. Um, I think when you, when you think about online grocery, um, you're trying to take a lot out of a lot of the overhead out of the, the brick and mortar retail Right, and so it needs that you need this robotic, efficient operations. Um, that is a very cool video. It, it reminds me of like the robots in an Amazon fulfillment center. Yep. Uh, the way they kind of go around. I one thing that struck me is I don't know. Does is it required that a human like sort of those totes that it that it goes that in the hive? Do you, does a human have to load that? Uh, no, and that, and that's that? that's one of the biggest things here that that the CEO said that was one of the reasons that they were doing these um, these acquisitions is that they're just looking for more robotics power, more engineering power, and they're trying to solve one of the hardest problems in robotics, and that is um, picking and sorting of groceries. There's such a vast disparity between the weights and the sizes and the shapes of things that have to get put into uh, that you go to the grocery store for. So it's a remarkably difficult problem they're trying to solve, but I love this business because it's a growing market. We know that we're looking for these new normal, what it's going to be like after COVID, and we know that we think online grocery is one that's here to stay. Uh, so, and we've seen that three three x to spending on online groceries since pre COVID. We've got about two minutes of messages for you. We'll be right back with Tiago Olson from Engage Ventures. Y'all stick with us. Don't go anywhere. Welcome back, everyone. So on the line, we have Tiago Olson, the Managing Director of Engage Ventures. And I'm going to open up the question to you, Tiago. Engage is not your typical VC, right? You've got this kind of unique model where you bring together Fortune 500 companies as well as some university research uh, to give kind of a, 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 uh, a more robust offering to your startups. Can you tell us a little bit about your model and how it separates you from other VCs? Yeah, so thanks for having uh, me, guys. Engage is, is, is unique, as you said. Um, I guess the way to think about it is, is we have uh, 11 different Fortune 500 LPs or in, investors or corporate partners, um, and, and we kind of pull that capital and turn around and, and invest in emerging high-growth uh, tech startups. So, you know, our, our thesis there is really um, investing in companies we think we can add a, a whole lot of value to through kind of the, the, the corporate partners. Um, the, in, in many cases, the, the CEO of, of um, each of the, the corporate partners is, is on our board, and we've kind of taken a top-down approach to really helping them kind of work that muscle of working with startups where, you know, if you think about Fortune 500 and startups, it can be a bit of, of oil and, and water sometimes. Um, so that, that's Engage in, in a nutshell. Um, we're based uh, right here in Atlanta. So, Tiago, we heard earlier, everybody watching this morning saw the Steve Case keynote. He referred a lot to uh, this, the tours that he takes, the Rise for the Rest tours, and he talked about how uh, people would question him and think, can, can you really find entrepreneurs in these middle-of-America cities like Chattanooga or Grand Rapids, Michigan? Can you really find entrepreneurs that are looking to grow big companies? And he resoundingly said yes. Uh, and you guys are really focused on the Southeast, and, and in particular Atlanta. I think like 70% of your initial investments were based in companies in the Southeast. Tell us a little bit why the Southeast 
East? Why Atlanta? And, you know, why are you tempting to be so hyper-localized here in the South? Yeah. So, you know, we, we have investments across, you know, the, the country, you know, Silicon Valley, internationally and everything. But you're, you're right. There's there's this concentration of, of portfolio companies in the Southeast. And, I, you know, I, I agree with, with Steve there. I, I think there's a, an outsized opportunity for uh, companies to be founded close to their end customer. Um, so a big focus for us is, is supply chain um, and, and a lot of enterprise technology. And, and you know, there's um, it's the third highest concentration of Fortune 500s right here in, in Atlanta. So what better place to kind of come figure out your go-to-market um, in rapid fire? So, you know, what we like to do is, is we have uh, each of our corporate partners is, is kind of focused on a different vertical or segment from uh, wealth management um, with Invesco and, 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 and financial services with Goldman Sachs to Home Depot and UPS kind of spreads the spectrum. So you can really start prioritizing what we call your go-to-market, which, you know, it's, it's one of the, the, the biggest issues we run into with entrepreneurs is a lot of the best technology has so many opportunities, but what do you prioritize? What do you target first or how, how do you get to market? Okay. Uh, hey, Tiago. So you guys at Engage, you invest mostly in early stage. Uh, either I've seen a lot of your investments have been accelerator or seed stages or, or up to, you know, early stage, stage A. Is that a factor of just uh, the amount of capital or, at, or what are the other reasons that you want to get in on the ground level? Is that something that is requested from the Fortune 500 companies you work with? Um, you know, so, so we, in, in many ways, are stage agnostic. We're not, we're not af- afraid of going early and getting involved um, was just a, a couple of founders, um, but you know, on the other end of the spectrum, have, have made investments in, in companies, kind of 70, 80 folks, kind of the Series B stage. Um, but that sweet spot is kind of, let's say, seed to Series A. And and what we like to look for is an outsized opportunity to add value um, and to help with that go to market. So for some, it is. Um, you know, they, they have a repeatable model, they have a large team, and they need to rapidly try to prioritize different kind of verticals and, and segments that um, we can help them kind of rapidly learn and get answers um, to, um, all the way to um, earlier stage companies that, that um, could, could really benefit from they have maybe a, a wider sort of a solution um, and, and can try to go to market you know, at the, at the same time, it's, it's kind of uh, forming a little bit of that product market fit. So um, it really kind of just depends on on the particular company and how we can add value. And, and that means we'll get involved in a whole bunch of different stages. Cool. Thanks, Tiago. Uh, let's talk about the funding process for a moment. Um, so, uh, you know, first off, how do you guys go about finding opportunities and vice versa? How would a startup get in front of you? Yeah, so so we actually track this, um, and you know, there's there's uh, founders can always reach out to me or other team members directly. Um, Tiago at Engage.vc, um, but you know, like all things, um, you know, it's best to kind of um, try to find someone who uh, can you know a warm intro. Um, but you know, in general, um, a lot of the companies that that we're running into are kind of sourced from other portfolio founders. Um, uh, our corporate partners, um, and, and a big piece of, of what we're starting to do now is really develop um, more sophisticated thesis um, on on the space and be proactive about reaching out to entrepreneurs. Um, that we we really kind of, kind of 
see headed in the right direction and, and see if we can good, be, be good partners there. Yago, how do you determine how much capital your portfolio companies are going to need uh, to invest and grow and reach their goals? Um, we, we like to break it down and, and take a milestone approach. So instead of some finger in the wind stuff like, hey, I, I'm going to raise X amount of capital and I have 18 months runway, um, we, we, we think about it much differently that the, uh, the growth uh, path isn't just this linear line. It can feel like it as a founder because you're every day you're progressing a little bit more but it really comes as a stair step. Um, so uh, those stair steps are, are around milestones, uh, primarily around uh, moments in time where you're pulling risk off the table. So if there was a question around, uh, let's say a, a company is shifting from founder-led sales where the founder or CEO is, is, is selling, kind of leading the majority of the sales effort to kind of a repeatable process the sales team, um, once those metrics are there to support it and everything risk is pulled off, and that would be kind of one of those, those stair steps. Um, so milestones-based approach is, is, is how we do it in short. Gotcha. Um, also, Tiago, um, in, in our research, it looks like to Andrew and I um, that 2020, um, you've had a little bit of a deal slowdown. It looks like you've done about nine deals uh, year to date. And that compares to 23 in 2019 and 18 in 2018. Uh, we were just wondering, you know, has that slowdown in the, in the deal flow, has that been, you know, COVID related? Has that been a lack of opportunities, uh, not attractive yeah. valuations? Or, does, you know, does that mean that there's a lot of uh, dry powder out there for deals in the future? Um, well, I think generally in the market, there's a whole lot of dry powder, which is why you've seen stuff kind of speed up here on the back half of, or back end of the year. Um, for us, that's less COVID related um, and, and more about we're actually we're in between two funds. Um, so we're now on an engaged fund two and investing out of that vehicle. So um, you should see that tick up um, real quick here. Um, okay. So we, we probably make 15 to 16 new investments every single year and, and, and a whole bunch of kind of follow ons there. So, you know, at, at this point, we're the most kind of active uh, in, investor in the southeast and, and, and plan to continue that. Tiago, I know, Tiago, I know you can't get into too many details, but, you know, just off the air, you were talking about opportunities you were looking into, into freight tech, uh, supply chain and logistics. What are you looking for? Uh, what, what's appetizing to you right now? And has that changed because of COVID? Yeah, it's it's a really interesting time, uh, I'd say, for um, startups and, and investors in, in supply chain. Um, so I think the McKinsey quote I, I saw or, or some of the research is, you know, there's been 10 years of e-commerce growth in, in, in you know, a, a three, four, five month period. And uh, that, that spells great kind of opportunity and the right swing for um, startups uh, tackling problems in this space. So for us, you know, if I level back and I look at the opportunities, there's um, automation, you know, in robotics across the supply chain that can help these um, you know, kind of partners, you know, keep up with the, the rapid kind of swings in growth in, in e-commerce. Um, in general, like one of the stats that's just really astounded me is, is digging in on, in trucking, dwell times. Um, it always gets passed off if, if you know, I'm the shipper at the dock, it's, it's the, the trucking company or the carrier's problem. But if, if you really break it down and think about things from a macro perspective, you have uh, potentially north of 25% of all of the capacity utilization time just wasted sitting around. 
So what are the technologies, um, whether it's automation, robotics, uh, software-based approaches that, that can help try to streamline that and, and uh, make distribution yards and, and loading docks a lot more efficient. Um, same thing, um, data is, is, is kind of a, a really interesting uh, kind of swing here where everyone talks about visibility and, and, and supply chain data and, and everything, but in reality, when you dig in, you have all of these siloed buckets. You know, there's uh, data around trucking, and that's separate from you know, warehousing. Um, it, you know, and, and, and all the different buckets they're going all the way back to manufacturing. Um, so, you know, there's this opportunity to to really start looking a lot more end to end and just providing a, a, a ton more value there. We got about three minutes left here, Tiago. Um, I thought I'd ask you a, a high-level sort of investing question here. So we know that founders and venture capital are tremendously important. So when you're out there looking at uh, you know potential new investments, what do you look for in a founder, and you know what personality attributes do you like to look for, and then you know how do you identify them, and when do you know that this particular founder may may be what you're looking for? Yeah, uh, I guess two things. Um, if I'm investing, um, if I'm a tech investor, I'm looking for some sort of tech, right? That, that, that's, a, that's meaningfully different. Um, that can provide some, some real value there. But when it comes to the founder, um, many times that tech doesn't need to be the di differentiator, and that founder is you know, more, more transparent and, and kind of uh, uh, the more they talk to the actual go-to-market or the actual um, play, the, the better. But I'd say the number one kind of thing that I'm looking for in a, in a founder is what I'd call magnetism. Um, and it's that ability to storytell and, and attract really talented people. Um, and, and I found that capital just tends to kind of follow that. Because if I'm looking at a company and I see someone ha that has unlimited optionality to go work anywhere or start something, and they've decided to come join you as a founder and starting a company, I mean, that, and you start seeing more of that, that tells me everything I, I need to know. Like that person can, you know, build something really big. And I think building something really big requires just getting uh, amazing people to, together. Um, and that requires a special sort of person. Otherwise, everything's fragmented. Makes a lot of sense. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense, Tiago. I, I got I to gotta cut us short here, Tiago, unfortunately. We'll have you back on shortly, I'm sure, here on Great Quarter, guys. I want to thank you uh, for your time today. This has been wonderful. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me, guys. This is fun. Yes, sir. We'll see you soon. All right. So, I mean, that makes, that makes a lot of sense, right? The capital follows the founder. It, it, they need to have a sense of magnetism. They need to be able to storytell, and that helps them attract talented people. We've certainly seen that here at FreightWaves under Craig. When I That's first right. got here, that was one of the big things that attracted me to come and work at FreightWaves was all of the really smart people in every division, whether we had a PhD in data science or a CFA on the accounting team. There was just a lot of really, really smart people. Yeah, I agree. I mean, I, that, that's how I landed at FreightWaves. I saw Craig speak at a conference, and you could just tell he was on a mission and, and knew what he was doing. That's right. Everybody, thanks so much for joining us. We got a fireside chat with Kathleen, Catherine Schifferly up, the founder of Work Truck Solutions. You guys stay tuned. It's going to be a good one. Thanks for joining us. Mm -hmm.